Welcome to the Princeton Evangelical Free Church Podcast. I'm John Padno, the lead pastor here at PEFC, where it is our desire to equip people to grow together in Christ. Our hope is that this podcast is a help and an encouragement to you this week. May God bless you as you listen. So we are in the book of Acts, and we have covered all of already Paul's first missionary journey, and it it may seem like it really didn't take us much time at all. And I've heard your cries in the streets for more infographs, and so I'm giving you what you want. The Jerusalem Council does a great job at nestling this sort of transition from Paul's first missionary journey to the second missionary journey. And if you look at this, uh, we see that Paul, he's writing letters to churches that he's established, like the Galatians. We see, and where we left off last week, is Paul and Barnabas, they break up the band. They break up the band right when it's time to begin going around and strengthening the churches that they had established. So if we remember Antioch, they, in the first missionary journey, went over to the island on Lake Malax and kind of traveled around. Paul is going to be taking a different course, and it is not like Paul, and I want to say this, it's not like Paul to ever fly solo in missions or in ministry ever at all. He's always got at least one, two, three. As we'll see, Luke enters the picture. He says, we all traveled to such and such a place. It is not a solo sport ministry. It is a team sport ministry. And so we'll see Paul traveling here to Lystra, Iconium, strengthening the churches. What's interesting is I began to study this passage this week. Um, I have preached on a large majority of this passage. And I'm prepared to do that again today. But the Lord, I think, wanted us to hone in on something a little bit more specific this week. And so uh, if you want to write at the top of your notes, today we're going to talk about reputation. We're going to talk about reputation. One topic, one point, and we're going to really kind of dive into that idea, specifically when it comes to Timothy. So I'm going to illustrate reputation and then... I'm going to give some definitions to it. Reputation. When you see this, what sort of reputation do things have? How many of you had this Nokia brick back in the day? When I turned 16, I reluctantly took a cell phone from my parents. They gave it to me as a gift, and I knew it was really a tracking device. But anyone who has ever had the, I, I think I probably still have this phone, and I bet you it would still turn on today. You could build a house out of these phones. That is the kind of reputation. I mean, I would throw it. I'd do all sorts of things. I'd paint it in art class. I mean, what about this? What sort of reputation does this have? Some of you maybe have flashbacks from the 90s commercials having to do with drugs, alcohol, cigarettes. So not only things hold and contain a reputation, but companies contain and hold a reputation. Anybody? Is this your store? Or is this your store? (laughs) 
I know where I am. I'm in Princeton, okay? So maybe we'll go here for you non-techies. What sort of reputation does Ford have? Or Chevy? We could go further to tractors, red and green, right? They each have their own. Some of you have received your call from Bernie Sanders. Reputation. Right? And each, each one of you, don't, don't be fooled, each one of you have something maybe similar but also different going on in your mind than those that are around you. Or this one, reputation. Even in these symbols, we get a, an idea of their reputation, do we not? Or how about this, athletes? Reputation. Some good, some bad, some ugly. Some of you really, maybe your feelings will well up when I show you this picture. Reputation. So what is this thing called reputation? What's a reputation? It's the beliefs or opinions that are generally held about someone or something. It's a widespread belief that someone or something has a particular habit or characteristic about them. Uh, maybe to put it in a different way, have you ever heard the term, they have a good name? Right? They have a good name. Uh, if what you do comes out of who you are, you could have a very good name. Does God have a good name? Yes, in fact, God is named after what he does and who he is really influences wholly what he does. He has a good name. I think it's important to clarify, though, that reputation differs from character. Let's not get that confused. Reputation differs from character because reputation is not always an actual summation of truth. I would say that oftentimes, reputation is a subjective feeling towards someone or something. And as we know, feelings and opinions are not always based on facts. And if you don't know that, I would like to submit that to you, that your, your feelings and opinions are not always based upon facts. But yet, even certain people's beliefs, even if they're not based on facts, they have a powerful force upon them. How many of you have ever watched the show Doomsday Preppers? Yeah. <laughs> Their feeling and belief that the world is going to come to some cataclysmic end and somehow they are going to survive makes it so that they dig these huge bunkers and they stockpile food and weapons and comic books. I don't know. But the reality is uh, our opinions on certain subjects, our feelings uh, towards someone or something uh, can even be affected by the weather, can it not? They are oftentimes uh, very fickle that sometimes our feelings and opinion towards someone or something could be influenced on whether or not we've had a cup of coffee already this morning. And as well as we know, past experiences or biases play a part, especially if they're negative. So let's talk about this in Scripture, and we'll also examine a little bit of our lives as well. We have Timothy's reputation that we read about in chapter 16. 
The first verse says this, that Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra, where Timothy is from, where we last found Paul, he was left there to die over a disagreement with the Jews. It says that there was a disciple there named Timothy. Everyone say Timothy. Now, Timothy's reputation is not just him individually, but it also is combined with his family. He is the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but, and even that we get a sense of opinion, but his father was a Greek. So it's not just who Timothy is, his identity, but it's also who his family is. His mom and his grandmother, we learn later in 1 Timothy, they're solid believers who know the scripture and who ground young Timothy in the holy scriptures. He knows who God is at a young age. He has, as we can maybe assume, he has a strong moral compass. Now, I will say this, as we think about our own families and our own upbringing, the stability of our upbringing, how we were nurtured, does not always determine everything about us or our reputation. But if you came from a stable home, do not miss the fact that it certainly helped a lot to grow up in a stable home. It helps tremendously to live in a home where values are modeled and instilled in us. I'm not talking about just morals, but as well as simple practical things being modeled and instilled in you. Something like chores. How many of you had chores modeled for you and you also were a part of doing chores? How many of you uh, car maintenance modeled and taught to you? How many of you um, lived in a home where you didn't just live paycheck to paycheck? This is a modeling thing that seems very simple day to day. You know, and I know some of you, you don't even know how to check your oil, and it shows, right? You don't even know what a dipstick is. Well, I guess. But like all of us, not unlike all of us, there are some parts of Timothy's reputation that are not so desirable. But, as we see in the text, but his father was a Greek. In this culture, especially if you were Jewish, uh, you would see this in Timothy's life and his family structure as a bit scandalous at the very least, and it is a gray area for a Jewish woman to marry a Greek man. Some would assume upon Timothy certain values based on having a Greek father. You know, that isn't to say Timothy's father was a complete scumbag, right? We don't know that. We don't not know that as well. But at the very least, we know that there must have been some conflict religiously in his home because Timothy never observed the Jewish rite of being circumcised on the eighth day of his life. And this is a huge deal religiously speaking, and identity speaking. You know, again, how do we liken this idea of religion and identity? Uh, Some of you grew up in Catholic homes, as I did. And some of you have had this conversation before. If you've had a long history of Catholicism, could you imagine telling your grandmother or your great-grandmother that you didn't baptize your baby when they were an infant? 
Some of you are thinking, that's why is that a big deal? It's a huge deal if you grew up Catholic in a strong Catholic home. Or for some of you, you have this conversation, and I'm going to, again, reveal another truth to you. This is not a Catholic Mass, right? Could you imagine tell? and some of you have this, you've got to tell Grandma and Grandpa you're not going to the Catholic Church anymore because it's a huge identity piece. Maybe there's some Lutherans, some Methodists, some Wesleyans, some Presbyterians who have a similar experience. That's, that's a big deal, those religious things. And again, our family reputation, it can hold some biases and even guilt and shame upon us depending on whether or not we break the mold. That is to say, I suspect there's many of you, if not all of you, that are like me, and you can identify some family, family reputations that have held or maybe even still hold you in some guilt and shame because you broke from them or because you didn't meet those standards. So maybe this is a question, maybe, uh, you know, oftentimes we like to reject this because it's negative thoughts and we want positive vibes only. Uh, but Jesus wants us to have his light shine into these areas. You know, can you identify any family, family reputations that have held or still hold you in guilt and in shame? This could be, and, and we're going to be real, this could be having a baby out of wedlock. You might be grown and far removed. Your child may be a successful adult who has graduated from school, has their own family, and you could still be held in some guilt and shame from past hurt. It could be something like divorce. It could be maybe the occupation didn't fit with what your parents or your family wanted you to do. It could be, as we've explained earlier, family or religious convictions that you just simply haven't met. We read that beyond the realm of family, Timothy contains a reputation from others in his community and those communities that are nearby. Let's read in verse 2. Look at it with me. It says that Timothy himself, not only he had a solid upbringing with the scriptures, you know, there's some scandal, of course, but Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And so let's point these out on the map here. Here's uh, Zimmerman. Uh, Timothy grew up in the Zim Zimmerman area. And not only is he known about in the Zimmerman area, but also up here in the, the Princeton-Baldwin Township area, do people know of Timothy? And as we think about those that have a reputation uh, that are well-known in their town, as well as in multiple towns, we can only assume they have one of two things. They either have a really good reputation, or they have a really bad reputation, and that is how people know them. For Timothy, he has a really good reputation where he grew up in nearby towns by those that are part of the body of Christ. Now, this is important as we think about this. Does this mean that no one could say one bad thing about Timothy? Absolutely not. That is unrealistic. So before our perfectionist and our Pharisee begins to show again, no. It's unrealistic for all of us. Did people have bad things to, to say about Jesus? 
You know, the Savior of the world who laid down his life as a sacrifice? Yeah, absolutely. But as far as it depends on Timothy, he is, as the scripture would say, above reproach. Above reproach, and we're not going to get into the whole now if you read in 1 Timothy. Above reproach is sort of this uh, overarching idea that has basic categories of leadership qualities underneath it. Uh, Leadership qualities mentioned in 1 Timothy. Anyone know them? Name a few. It means to be above reproach if you are, I'll start, humble. What else? Not a drunkard. That's what it means to be above reproach. Uh, To be the husband of one wife. That is, there is fidelity and faithfulness in your marriage and also in other relationships that you have. What else? Can you be an elder or should you be an elder if you cannot manage your own household? Meaning, you don't know how to pay your bills or uh, your kids are running around naked even in the winter. Right? Maybe that's extreme. Hopefully that's extreme. Yeah, you can manage your own household. That is what it means to be above reproach. And so we look at Timothy's qualification for leadership in the church is not unlike our qualification for leadership. Now, I'm going to point this out to you right now. Paul wants to take Timothy with him in dangerous, dangerous ministry territory. They're going to go be missionaries together. How old is Timothy? How many 16 through 18-year-olds are there in this room? Raise your hand. Oh, come on. 19, 20. There we go. We got a few more. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. It would be saying, I'm taking you with me to dangerous cities away from your parents, and we're going to go on a mission together for an undisclosed amount of time, and there's no waivers to be signed. Timothy's qualification is, He had a solid understanding of the scriptures. The same is true for any of us in this room. We can do missions if we have a solid understanding of the scriptures. He was well known for his gifting in the church. And last but not least, the qualification for him to go on this internship is being above reproach in many ways, except there was one thing that needed to be taken care of. And that was for him to be able to identify with the Jewish people in the realm of circumcision. Let's read it with me, verses 3 and 4. This is important. It says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and Timothy went and underwent a very painful procedure at 16 to 18 years old. He was circumcised. Why? Because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. They knew his reputation. And this wasn't about faith. This wasn't a faith issue at all. It wasn't a theology issue. Because, verse 4, they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them the observance of the decision that was reached by the apostles at the Jerusalem Council that we just talked about. That said, we're not going to burden the Gentiles with having to follow the Mosaic law. And yet, Timothy willfully observes it. That's crazy. 
Why was Timothy's reputation such a big deal? Now, Paul's experience with the Jews from even Timothy's own hometown was not a very positive one. It's just a few pages back. Uh, But he's going to bring this young buck with him to do ministry to the Jews who, you know, we think about they're hostile, and so what does that mean? It means like they uh, don't like his page on Facebook and maybe write a few nasty comments? No. They literally left Paul to die outside of the city because they disagreed with him. Now, Paul does not want Timothy, I mean, there's going to be disagreements, but he doesn't want Timothy to have disagreements that aren't worth having in terms of that reputation. Suffice to say this, okay? The gospel itself confronts us. Everybody. The gospel itself contains its own stumbling blocks. To name a few, we are called as Christians, and for those that want to be Christians, we are to crucify ourselves. We are to crucify our own selfishness. We are to be putting to death the desires of our flesh, all of this in order to live for Jesus. Is that not a confrontation? Would that not be a stumbling block, especially for a culture that just desires to serve ourselves and our own conveniences? What Paul doesn't want Timothy to do, even in his own ministry, We don't need to and we don't want to add any more hurdles or stumbling blocks for others to come to faith in Jesus. Okay, let's get practical here. For instance, do we sing and talk about the gospel of grace? Grace flows down and it covers me. It is so abundant. So if we sing and we talk about the gospel of grace... And yet we as a people are quick to criticize and judge people in an unrighteous way. Will anyone believe our gospel of grace? Maybe another example. If our gospel, if if your gospel is a gospel of generosity, that is God who is the generous creator who generously gave himself for us, if we hold out this mantle that our gospel is a gracious and generous gospel, but you know when you're out in your yard and the local sports team comes by because you know they're selling those cards that you get deals that you're probably never going to use, and you're quick to grab your wallet to make sure you don't give any money away, do you think anyone's going to think twice about your generous gospel? I don't think so. If we sing about the selfless humility of Christ, but we are never willing to pick up a mop, right? we always have to be told. We're never willing to put away chairs, not just in church, but especially outside of church. I mean, people look at you weird when, when they're t- doing their volunteer hours to clean things up and you start cleaning stuff up. They don't know what to do with that. If your gospel is a gospel of selfless humility, but you can't even grab a rake to rake the ball field, 
how will those who are far from Jesus, how will they ever consider the humility of Christ as anything more than just a fairy tale ideal and an American dream? That is to say, Timothy has a freedom and a right to stay exactly how he is, and he can punch his ticket to heaven. But the crazy thing is, what the gospel does, is he decides to instead choose pain, to choose suffering, to choose humiliation. I mean, think about it. To be circumcised at 16, 17, 18, humiliation, all so that the gospel could be seen and heard clearly and loudly. And so as you think about your gospel, as you think about your Jesus, is he worth all that? Is your gospel worth all that? So we think about our reputation and our gospel. Verse 5, we have a summary statement in all of these things. There is fruitfulness. It says, so the churches, they were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. This is our reputation, not in ourselves, but our reputation in light of the gospel, in light of breaking down barriers to the gospel. Paul gives, I think, a good summary statement here. He says, to the weak, I became weak. Um, In some respects, some context, uh, he's speaking in part to the weak in conscience, to those that are forbidding this and that and this. He, he played by their rules in order that he could clearly proclaim the gospel to them, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. The weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. What does that mean and what does that look like? I'm going to give you a visual illustration that I hope you take with you as you go. Um, How many of you ever played basketball as a kid? Um, what are some of the drills that you do? I was going to have my interns come up, and I'm still toying with that idea. I see some other basketball players. Um, if you've ever grown up in any sport I've really ever played in, now, if you were to do a drill, say, defensive drill, Josh and Kelvin, come up here. You know, these, we got so much stage here. We might as well. You know, Cooper, you're welcome to join us to rep, rep the P-Town, but, you know, I see you. I see you. All right, boys. Okay. Uh, It's practice time. Uh, What are we going to do? We're going to practice our defense. Get in your defensive stance. All right. Now, kids, I want you to notice something about their feet. Get up. Get up so you can see their feet. If I teach a defensive stance, I am on what is known as the balls of my feet. Kids, point at the balls of your feet. I'm at the balls of my feet. Right? Shuffle. Let's see it. Are you ever on your heels when you play defense? You're only on your heels if you're going to get schooled. What about to pass the ball? Would you ever be off the balls of your feet to pass? No. Always on the balls of your feet. 
What about to score, to dribble? Are you ever flat-footed when you catch the ball? No. No. Always on what? The balls of your feet. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Yeah. We're always on the balls of our feet so that we're always prepared and ready to serve. That's the idea. So the question you're going to take with you as you think about this and when you see a basketball and when you hear about basketball is this. Are you on the balls of your feet ready to serve? Right? Because you don't always know when someone's going to pass you the ball. You don't always know when the opportunity is going to come. You don't always know when the lane's going to open up and you need to drive. Okay, are you on the balls of your feet? That is to say, are you serving yourself or are you serving others? If you are serving yourself, you're going to be pretty flat-footed when opportunities come to serve others. But if you are ready to serve others, you're going to be on the balls of your feet looking for opportunities to do just that. Are you on the balls of your feet? Are you claiming rights? Or are you flat-footed? Are you, or vice versa. Are you claiming rights, that is to say, and get this phrase, digging your heels in, right? Stubborn, things cannot change. It has to be this way. Or are you on the balls of your feet, giving up, ready to give up your rights so that you're able to gain ground and reach others? Last but not least, do you contextualize the gospel? That is, how well do you identify with those around you to build trust? Are you even willing to do that? Are you willing to strike up a conversation? Are you willing to talk about deep things? Because let's be honest, trust is the gold standard of relational currency, is it not? Are people going to tell you anything real if they don't trust you? Absolutely not. It also gives you opportunity to have a voice in somebody's life. Reputation is like building a wall. Uh, it takes time to build if it's going to be anything worth having and if it's going to be strong. So, you know, when you go home this week and you go to work, you go to play, you go to whatever it is, and you begin to serve people, uh, you know, if you don't immediately have an opportunity to speak the gospel in their life, that's okay. It takes time. It takes time in every community. In Princeton, right, Princetonites, can just anybody walk into Princeton and have a voice and be respected by the community? Absolutely not. I know that from firsthand experience. Reputation is like building a wall. It takes a long time, even longer, if it's destroyed. And that brings us to our conclusion. Some final notes here. Who controls our reputation? I think this is important to note as we close. I will say this, you can control what you do. How many of you can control what you do? You can control what you do. Uh, to some level, and this may be a sermon for a different day, to some level you can control how you think of yourself and your own reputation, but you do not have control of how others view you. You don't. There is a reason why God doesn't want us to be driven by what others think of us, or the fear of man, right? All of this idea of thinking about our reputation is driven by the gospel, 
driven by the grace of God to display his glory, not our own perfection. And I'm going to come back around to this. I think it's important that I do. Does God want you to live under the shame or guilt from family reputations or expectations you have failed to meet? No, he does not. He does not. We are not called to be a people held by or a people who hide in our guilt and shame, but we also are not called to ignore it. We are called to acknowledge it, and as we sang, I surrender all, we're called to give it to Jesus. And that, that, that's the, the, the beautiful thing about it, is it's not we're going to sweep this under the rug, but we're going to bring it to the light. And I'd submit this to you as you go, in Jesus, my shame, my shame and guilt can be redeemed. And a lot of it has been redeemed. In Jesus, my shame and guilt not only can be redeemed, but it can also be transformed. My guilt and my shame can be transformed in such a way that even something as hard and gross and dark could even be used for good. Only a great and good God could do all of those things. Amen? How many of you can testify that that is the truth of what Jesus does with our shame and our guilt? Hey, look at those hands. Would you pray with me as we close? Thank you for listening to today's podcast and consider subscribing and sharing with others. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please go to princetonfree.com. God bless.